We're at 1926 Ballpark. This ain't Cowboy Stadium where there's chandeliers and marble. We will never win that game. That's Jesse Cole, best-selling author, marketing expert, and the owner of the Savannah Bananas. But I believe we could win the greatest show in sports. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Jesse Cole to discuss how to stand out in your marketplace, drive explosive growth, and inspire fanatical loyalty. And we had the whole stadium and the players singing, look at the stars, like how they shine for you, and everything, it was all yellow. And I remember the first time I did it and I looked at the stadium and saw thousands of lights and the whole stadium singing. And I was like, there's nowhere in the world anyone will ever experience this like this. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Jesse Cole is a fanatic about fandom. As the founder of Fans First Entertainment and the owner of the Savannah Bananas, Jesse's on a mission to spark a fan-focused movement. He's so passionate about the power of standing out and capturing attention that whether he's on the field, on stage, or even on this podcast, he's rocking a bright yellow tuxedo. Yeah, it's funny. Most people on podcasts, when they explain that, they're like, is this guy a lunatic? Like, why is he wearing a yellow tux on an audio interview? And uh, no, this has become my uniform. So, you know, when I played baseball, I was big into you put your uniform on, it's game time. And for me, as we've started running more of a circus-like baseball team and one of my inspiration comes from the poster of a person I have right here in my office. It's P.T. Barnum. And he understood the showmanship and putting on a show more than anyone. And so, geez, almost 10 years ago, the first time I put on a tux and the black one was too hot and 100 degrees. So I found a yellow one and it fit our colors. And then we became the Savannah Bananas and it works out. So I wear a yellow tux every time. It's showtime. It's my uniform. And uh, yeah, I, I believe in standing out. And so, yes, it is often the yellow elephant in the room, but uh, it creates a good conversation and people think I'm crazy. So that's not a bad starting point. So funny you mentioned P.T. Barnum because I was on a podcast the other day and I was called the P.T. Barnum of the legal industry and I wasn't sure whether I'd take this as a compliment or not a compliment. What, what does that mean to you when you think about P.T. Barnum? Oh, you know what? It's so interesting. What P.T. Barnum did back in the 1800s, if you were talking about the legend of all legends, I mean, he was it. I mean, he was the best marketer, promoter, writer, speaker, advertise of, of his time. Like, I mean, he was best friends with presidents. Like he, he, he met the queen. He spent like, he was the guy that everyone reached out to and he knew how to bring together a cast of characters and entertain better than anyone of any time. And I put him right there with Walt Disney. People kind of give him a bad rap because they take quotes that he never even said. His rival said, that he said there's a sucker born every minute. PT never said that. His rival was smart and put it on him. So he was never about that. And uh, I think if you get called the PT Barnum, it means you're uh, very good at getting
getting people entertained and excited and people want to be around that. And that's important. And I know we're about to talk about that. Before we do, so your first book, Find Your Yellow Tux, awesome, by the way. So this is all about like just basically standing out in a noisy world. The book is actually not about baseball at all, uh, but rather creating a, a business with customers who are more than just the purchaser of a product or service. I'm just curious, what was the the reason why you decided to write the second book, Fans First? <laughs> you know, the first book, Find Your Yellow Touch, was my journey on how I went from struggling, challenged, you know, playing a baseball player that hurt himself to, you know, not being able to pay myself when I first took my first job to finding out how to stand out and make a difference. And I believe everyone has something that makes them stand out. And if you amplify it by 10, it's game over. And I was able to find that. And that helped me personally and professionally. But fans first literally changed the game for our organization. And fortunately, it's spread and made an impact on a lot of different organizations. And Fans First is the next book, and it's the name of our company, Fans First Entertainment. It's our mission, Fans First Entertain Always. Every decision we ask, is it Fans First? We follow the Fans First way. Everything that everyone sees about marketing and social media about us, it starts from the root of Fans First. And I believe that too many companies, too many people are focused on chasing customers as opposed to creating fans. And that's what we put, spend all of our time doing. So I've read that your mantra is whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And as we dive into fans first, I wanna give people some context about the Savannah Bananas. Maybe they haven't seen them or maybe they haven't seen them on TikTok or social media, but by and large, this is a minor league baseball team that really should not even exist. Like if you put into context what is happening here, this almost seems unbelievable. How would you describe what the Savannah Bananas are? <laughs> well, you're right, we shouldn't exist. I mean, you can't name any of our players. We have no advertisements at our ballpark. We play in a 1920 stadium. We were first run by interns. I mean, there's so many reasons why we shouldn't exist. We sell only one type of ticket. I mean, we do everything kind of countercultural to what the business does. But yeah, it, it's an absolute circus and a baseball game breaks out. And that's what we do. And six years ago, you know, I forgot that. When we first came to Savannah, we tried to fit in. And my wife and I were trying just to get anybody to come out to the games. And we were like everyone else. And you said, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. We were doing the normal things and we were failing. And so I've learned that if you really want to stand out, you got to go do the exact opposite of what everyone else is doing. And so the bananas are 100% focused on fans first and entertainment. We have, you know, a senior citizen dance team called the Banana Nanas. We have a male cheerleading team called the Mananas. You know, we have break dancing coaches. We have banana babies during games. We have a banana pep band. We have a player on stilts. We play in kilts. We do dances in the middle of the game. We do TikTok trends while the game's going on. It is all about entertainment. And now the biggest risk that we've taken is developing a brand new game called Banana Ball, which has really taken off. And it's all stemmed from the two words, fans first. So now you guys are selling out every game. And I can attest to this because before we started this podcast, I went to the website and I was trying to get tickets for an upcoming game. And it was like, all right, you're in position 192 or whatever it is in line. Keep waiting. And I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. So ESPN, I think called you guys the greatest show in baseball. I mean, this is absolutely wild. Before we get into all that, I'm curious as to where your love of baseball really, really came from. It seems like you've loved baseball all of your life. I did have a love for baseball. Now I have a love for what baseball could be. I don't love the current game of baseball. I think the current game of baseball is very challenged. But to go where the love started for me, you know, I was 
Uh, an only child grew up in Massachusetts. My parents got divorced. My mother had some real challenges. And fortunately, my father got custody of me. And that was the one bond we had. Every day my dad came home from work, we'd go to the baseball field. He built a mound in my backyard so I could pitch. And every day I fell in love with the game more and more. You know, I was fortunate to be bat boy for the Red Sox for one game in Fenway when I was five years old. I got to pitch at Fenway when I was 20 years old in an all-star game. And it was everything. I really loved the game playing. Watching the game was different. So that was really the big aha moment happened for me is that watching the game was not nearly as fun as playing the game. And I wanted to create that same type of feeling that I had playing for everyone watching. And that's really where the 15 years of experiments happened to lead us to where we are today. So from what I recall, I mean, you got into this business in a pretty interesting way, right? So you got injured, then you went from being an intern to a general manager all in your 20s. I got injured right away my senior year, and I was talking to pro teams. Like, I literally thought my dream was going to come true. That ended that career, and I got an email about an internship. I was like, I'll take it. And that first day on the internship, I remember I show up, and the sales director says, here's the phone book. Start selling sponsorship. And I'm like, well, what are we selling? He goes, just anything you can sell. And I realized that the team was like the worst in league in attendance, not selling anything. But fortunately, I was able to connect with business owners and I convinced them to buy some things. And I sold more than the GM and more than the sales director. So I got offered the job as a GM after a few months of the new team or of a team in Gastonia, North Carolina. And the reason why you get offered a job as a GM at 23 years old is it's the worst team in the entire country. Like literally that team had $268 in the bank account my first day. And we had three full-time employees and payroll was on Friday. And... They were only averaging a couple hundred fans a game. And I wasn't able to pay myself for three and a half months. So I took this job right out of college and I couldn't pay myself until uh, December 15th was the first paycheck I took. And it was amazing, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And I think so often we get in these situations where like, oh, the world is tumbling down. Why did I take this job? But it forced me to fall in love with learning about PT Barnum, Walt Disney, sales, marketing, any customer experience, anything to get people to come out to our ballpark. And I pushed myself and pushed myself and pushed myself. And that was the best thing that ever happened. And so for 10 years of experimenting in Gastonia, we went from lowest in the country in attendance to fourth in the country in attendance, became a million dollar franchise. And more than anything, I learned that promotions like Flatulence Fun Night and Salute to underwear night and sometimes grandma beauty pageants don't work as well, but some other ideas do. And that, that was a, a great experience for me. So I want to fast forward to 2014 when you and your wife, Emily, who's, it seems like he's been very instrumental to all of this progress. When you guys went to Grayson Stadium in Savannah and at the time, I think this is the stadium that had been there since 1926. You all had a, a vision that nobody else seemed to have. If you could speak to that. Yeah, and I give credit to Walt Disney. I mean, he's fun, famous for saying it's kind of fun to do the impossible. And the poster I have him, it says vision. And it says that quote below. Yeah, I mean, I proposed to her in front of a sold-out crowd with our team in Gastonia, had fireworks off in the middle of the game, delayed the game for like 20 minutes. The umpire's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is our moment. And uh, she surprised me with a trip to Savannah. And we went to a minor league game. There was less than 100 people in the ballpark Saturday night, beautiful night at the stadium. And it was the deadest environment I've ever seen. Like you could picture like a tumbleweed coming through like Kansas, coming through the ballpark. I mean, it was it was nothing. But I looked at the stadium. I saw what an opportunity. Savannah's a fun city, 14 million tourists, a 1926 ballpark that FDR gave a presidential address there. Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron played there. I said, there's something here. And so, yeah, I reached out to the commissioner of the Coastal Plain League, that the college league they were in. And I said, you know, we want this market. And he said, sure, Jesse, whatever you say. And they left. They said they couldn't be successful there. They wanted a new stadium. And we convinced the city to give us a chance and, and got the keys on October 5th, 2015. In November of that year, you guys threw a launch party. I think 80 people showed up, mostly press. You sold two season tickets. And the caterers for that event, I think they felt so bad for you, they didn't even send you a bill. <laughs> 
Yeah, they literally gave us all the food and all the alcohol for free. They were like, because we were in this huge conference center and it was just nobody there. And we literally had an event. It was We made it free for everybody. We're like, we're here, we're here. And like people were like, who are you? We don't care. Like we did, we sent personal invitations. We literally went to businesses' doors and gave them invitations. And like, I remember Emily tells a story, which isn't in the book. They, she walked into an ice cream place and they said, we're not interested. And she said, we're just giving you a free invitation. Like we're your neighbor. We're not interested. And I was like, oh my God, they're not even interested. And we're giving them free stuff. Everything worthwhile is an uphill climb, right? So from what I recall, you're five months out from opening day and things are really down to the wire. I think you and Emily got a call when you were at your best friend's wedding. What was that situation like? I was fired up. It's my college roommate's wedding. You know, we were all excited to have some fun and it's 4.45 on a Friday and we got a call from one of our team members that we just overdrafted our account and we're about to miss payroll. And we're like literally getting ready to go on the bus that Friday for the wedding. And Emily's like, okay, so quickly, like I transfer some money from my personal account to make sure we cover payroll like quickly before five o'clock. And we got in the, the bus to go to the wedding and we just were like dead silent looking at each other. And once we got in the party, we were like, all right, just have fun for Steve, you know, make it a good time. And we drove home from New Jersey the next day and around an hour in the car, Emily turns to me and says, uh, we just have to sell our house. And so we built our dream house in Charlotte and it was our dream house. We had a hot tub and fire bell because we had a lot of success with Gastonia. We were fortunate. We sold it and we emptied our savings account, emptied out and put the money into Savannah because we were over a million dollars in debt, put the money into Savannah and we got an airbed. And I remember the first time we were in town and we had to get food. And Emily says, we only have $30 to go grocery shopping this week. And we went to Walmart with $30 and it was like, that's where we were just six years ago, which is, which is crazy. But I look back at it with fond memories now because I'm glad we went through it because it makes us appreciate where we are now more than anything. Man, and going through this journey with your wife, Emily, I mean, that in itself, and I say this as somebody who started my business with my wife, Jessica, what was that journey like? Were you two always on the same page? Was she always supportive? <laughs> Anybody who works together, if they say they're always on the same page, they're crazy. Because, you know, what draws you together as any marriage or couple is not always work. There's things that, that you're excited about, but it's also something different. And for us, work started consuming us. It became everything because we had to get out of the debt. We had to keep our team going. We had to. And so, yeah, it was challenges. I'm this crazy showman type promoter and Emily's the realist. And she's like, Jesse, we can't do that most of the time. And so we had to have those conversations and it was struggles for a while because we're both trying to pursue this and she was away from her family family. But the biggest thing that we learned is that let's stay in the lane that what we enjoy, what we love and what gives us energy. And so now, I mean, Emily is all about our people. She has 1% of our budget to spend on solely surprising and delighting our people. And that's 1% of top line. So if you have a very successful company that's growing, like that's growing every year, just to surprise and delight. She does that. And it makes me so proud. I help run the show and that makes her proud. And like we stay in each other's lanes. And I think that's, what's been really successful in us moving forward and making the difference that we're making. So then when it came to naming the team, like how did you end up deciding on the Savannah Bananas? On that November, that huge event with 80 people that showed up total, that monster event with the media that I said, uh, we need a team name that's dramatically different. And I was very specific. I go, we don't want anything that anyone's been called before. We don't want anything like, you know, an animal or whatever. And so what do we get? A thousand normal already named like the Braves. You guys could be the, you got the Savannah Braves, the Savannah Cardinals. I'm like, they've already been that. Like, the ports, the anchors, the sailors, the skippers. Like it was just all generic names. And um, it wasn't until like two days before the contest ended, a 62 year old nurse put in bananas. And me and Emily and the team looked at each other like, that would be crazy. And then all of a sudden, Emily said, go bananas. And then like someone said, what if we can name the mascot split? And then someone said, what about the banana nanas? And we started like, just like kids, like, like you're picturing like a kindergarten class, like just rhyming stuff and like saying things that could do, like that's what we were doing. 
And we said, it'll create enough attention that enough people won't like it, but the people that know us, that know we're about having fun, they'll love it and it fits our brand. And so we decided to do it. And we spent two days working with our team on how to deal with the criticism because we were right on that February 25th. We, we got it pretty strong. Yeah. And it seems like throughout, you've always kept the fans involved, right? Whether it's crowdsourcing the name of the team or either other initiatives. In fact, I believe you even dedicate the book to the fans. I guess why that strategy and has that ever backfired in the sense that like, if we, if we open this up to everybody, how do we know it's going to yield good ideas? <laughs> it's scary when you open things up to fans because, you know, generally if you put a thousand people together, they're going to come to the middle. And for the bananas, a guy in a yellow tuxedo, I don't like to go to the middle. So if we made it a popularity contest, we would have been Savannah Braves. We would not have been the bananas. So we're selective on when we take just suggestions or when we do kind of a popularity vote, which we do for T-shirts, jersey designs, things like that that we know they're going to be actually buying. But no one was actually, the Savannah Bananas was our identity. So we had to be very specific with that. Before we do anything, we always ask, what would the fans think? What would the fans want? I mean, I think it was either Bezos or Howard Schultz that they said they always pictured an empty chair in the room. And we do the same thing. Do fans want to have ticket fees, convenient fees? You know, do fans want a $30 shirt to be $38.50 because of shipping and taxes? No. So we eliminate it and we don't know the answer how to do it. When I tell people this, they never believe it. Like, they're like, really? I never even thought about that. You buy a $20 ticket from us or $25 ticket, it's $20 or $25. And not only is it all inclusive, and we can get to that later, but we pay everyone's taxes. So we'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars of people's taxes. And I don't know anybody. I mean, it's always just part of what you do. Here's your taxes. You pay, you get food, you pay taxes. You get drinks, you get taxes. You get tickets, you get taxes. We pay everybody's taxes for all their food, their merchandise, and their tickets. And I'm not trying to boast. I'm just saying, because I'm a fan, I want a $20 thing to be $20. I want a $5 beer to be $5. And so we put that perspective, even though we leave hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table, but that's our whole mentality. And we work for the fans, the name of our company's fans first. We have to do, take actions to do that. And that's why we eliminate all ads in our stadium. It's everything we do. And the fans have certainly come out and supported you. So I guess to, to take it back to opening day, you've got the team, you've got the stadium, you've got a name for the team, a plan. Now it's down to executing. What was opening day like? Because I, I think in the book you describe it as cursed and magical. <laughs> July 17, 1955 was when Disneyland opened. And they called that Black Sunday because everything went wrong at Disney. I mean, there was flooding. The cement wasn't poured right. People were getting their shoes stuck in the cement. I mean, over flooding. The bathrooms weren't working. It was a disaster. Ours was pretty close to that. It absolutely poured rain. We, we convinced enough people to come out because I think they were expecting us to fail. So it was a sold out crowd and it started pouring and people just rushed into the stadium. We didn't know how to like crowd control. So they just ran to the stadium. And so we didn't have food ready or anything. So we started getting food ready, but we were behind. And I mean behind. It was all inclusive because every game in Savannah, you get all your burgers, hot dogs. We went through 10,000 pieces of meat and we had about 2,000 ready. And people had to wait like two hours for food. It was bad. They rushed in. I mean, people were soaked. The whole ballpark was wet. It was just that sense of disaster. But at 8.30, when we finally started the game, an hour and a half later, and I looked up in the crowd, not one fan had left. And I was like, this is special. If I waited an hour and a half for food in the pouring rain, Sorry, guys, I'm out of here. But they all wanted to give us a shot. And they were in banana costumes and they were ready. And I even had the banana nanas dance out in the rain, which was very funny. It was a weird ask to ask, can you guys, we're in a rain delay. Can you just dance? It's raining, Jesse. Just, are you interested? Okay, we'll do it. And like all these moments happened and it was very special. And we played, we were wearing green uniforms because we weren't quite ripe. 
and the team made six errors and played terrible. We lost poorly, but um, fans stayed, and there were a lot of magical stories from that night, and I left and said, you know what? If we were this bad at the operation, the execution, but they gave us a shot, we're going to be okay. And from that night on, that year, every game sold out, and we've sold out every game since. Looking back at that, like, why do you think you got that initial buy-in from the fans? Like, meaning that, you know, they could have shown up and took a glance at what was going on, been like, what the hell is this? Like, what is is this whole situation all about? And then just walked out the door, but they didn't. Why do you think that was? What's your meaningful differentiator? So any company, what's your meaningful differentiator? The one thing that you think has the most impact in making you different. And, you know, there's a great book, uh, Francis Frey, I forget, Uncommon Service. And it says you need to be willing to be bad at certain things but to be amazing at certain other things. And so we chose the show. And as bad as the food operation was, as bad as the regular operation, parking, all everything else, to see players greeting the fans when they came in, to watch the players dance during the game, to throw a first banana instead of a first ball, to lift a banana baby up and sing, na, savanya, na, he, you know, in front of the whole crowd. They all walked out, I believe, and said, I saw something I've never seen before in a baseball game. I was thoroughly entertained and it didn't have anything to do with the baseball game because we played terrible. That became our meaningful differentiator, the show, the entertainment. We're at a 1926 ballpark. This ain't Cowboy Stadium where there's chandeliers and marble. We will never win that game. We will never win the best food in the game. We'll never win the nicest stadium. But I believe we could win the greatest show in sports. And so that's at that day that proved that was what we're going to focus on. And that's what fans come for. And they'll sit in an old ballpark. They'll have a regular hot dog and uh, they'll watch the show. And fans have really reacted well to that. Instead of spending money on like traditional marketing, you go all in on creating these you wouldn't believe moments, right? Just for the fans. If you could elaborate on some of those. Yeah, I mean, we spent a ton of money in marketing when we first started and sold a handful of tickets. I mean, newspaper, radio, we tried it all and it failed. And then we said, well, what if we just create an experience that people would walk into the ballpark and say, you wouldn't believe what they did today. You wouldn't believe. And then they, every night you have 4,000 people leaving, telling other people what they did last night. What's a better, powerful, more marketing uh, way of using your dollars and using the experience? So, yeah, I mean, the way we look at a script, and I believe every business should do this. I believe every business should actually script out the experience they want their customers to have. We used to have only four or five things in the pregame. We used to have our 18 half-inning promotions. We have 50 pregame promotions now. And during the game, we not only have our 18, but we have another 30 to so that happens while the game's played. And we script out an experience to be like a movie. So without going too far in depth here, Michael, but like a great movie will make you laugh. They'll make you emotional. They'll make you have all these different feelings. It's not just like a thriller the whole time. Like, oh, like you need to care. You need to get down. You need to go through that. And a baseball game, you don't often have that because you can't control that. Well, we believe that we can control the experience based on having those ooh and ah special moments, by having those loud cheering moments, by having those thrill moments. And so we started crafting that. So like a you wouldn't believe moment, every night the players come into the crowd and deliver roses to little girls and they get down on their knee. And if you have a daughter, if you have, you understand that feeling of seeing a daughter get a rose from a player. We had a woman come up to me, said that they still saved that rose for a few years. The rose is dead and it's just like a piece, but they saved it. Those moments, you know, in the, we salute all the military during the game and we actually have our players walk into the crowd and shake hands and look them in the eye and say, thank you for your service. Those moments in between all the little pie your dad promotions and the whole stadium doing hey baby and guess your spouse and grandma dance offs and all the fun, there's those special moments. And again, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. The seventh inning stretch has been a typical thing. Take me out to the ball game at every game, every ballpark in the world. Now, you know, in the book, I do a second inning stretch. So I have a little bit fun there. But 
we switched something up this banana ball tour. I said, can we create a moment that will give you goosebumps? And I heard the song Yellow by Coldplay. You know, look at the stars, look how they shine for you. I can't sing, sorry about that. And I said, what if we create a moment where everyone comes on the field, the players, and we tell every fan to lift up their phone with their flashlight. And we had the whole stadium and the players singing, look at the stars, look how they shine for you. And everything, it was all yellow. And I remember the first time I did it and I looked at the stadium and saw thousands of lights and the whole stadium singing. And I was like, there's nowhere in the world anyone will ever experience this like this. And that's how you create a you wouldn't believe moment. You think about those moments that everyone else does. And instead of a seven inning stretch thing and take me out to the ball game, you're a part of a moment that you feel like you belong and you're a part of something that you won't have anywhere else. And that's how we try to create our scripts. Man, I just have to imagine that if you were tasked with creating a social network or a social media platform, it would be TikTok because it literally like that platform, it is designed to showcase these types of moments that it sounds like are happening at uh, Savannah Bananas game almost every single night. We designed these meetings called OTT meetings and it is in the book. Like I was telling you, like in six months, so many things happen, but every Monday we have an OTT meeting because we follow the lessons from SNL. Every week we try to plan creative new things we do and OTT is over the top. So what is this over the top crazy things we're going to do that never happen on a baseball field? And we saw this TikTok trend of a guy doing like the drop challenge where everyone just kind of drops. I think actually Jimmy Fallon was doing it. And uh, we said, well, what if we had our pitcher and our infielders and our outfielder do it all during a pitch and then drop down and then actually pitch? And we said, let's just see what happens. And we put it out and it got 15 million views. We're like, okay, TikTok likes this. What other TikTok songs and trends can we do? And so we started developing the 3-2-2, the third inning, the second pitch, uh, the second hitter. And we always do a choreographed dance. And they've done ones we haven't released yet. Beyonce, Single Ladies, and Michael Jackson, and all these ones. And it just made the game fun. And, and we realized that if you can do things during a baseball game that's quick, fun, and people have never seen before, it's great for TikTok. And obviously in the last month, you know, we've gained 1.5 million more followers. We're at 2.4 million now, and it's been amazing to watch. It seems like whatever these things are happening, the players are on board. And I imagine this has gotten easier over the years, but initially when you had some of these ideas, what was it like to get the players on the team itself on board and say, here's what we're going to do in this moment? <laughs> it was tough in the beginning. I mean, we had guys, when I brought dance instructors out to teach them how to dance, players were like, I'm not doing this. And I shared that in the Find Your Yellow Tux book. But yeah, I think now that they see the power of the social media and the impact and what's happening, guys are like, oh, that'd be cool. Like if people know me for what I do and like, we've had that like Bill Leroy, when we were looking at Kansas City as a place to play, we were all grabbing lunch and two different families of kids came up to you, are you Bill Leroy for the Savannah Bananas? And he was like, what? Like, you know, he never helped that before. So now you get buy-in, but I think the key to buy-in for any organization, and I know there's business leaders listening to this and what I've learned is it's not just telling people this is how we do it, it's stories and so, no one gets a bananas uniform or joins our staff until they go through bananas fans first orientation. And it's stories and videos of what players have done in the past to create fans first moments. It's stories that they can resonate with. And when I tell the story about Brian Encarnacion, the player that two kids came up to him and said, can I have your autograph? And he got down a knee and said, only if I can have yours. And they gave their autographs on his hat. When I share that story with the team, now you look around our team and 10, 15 guys have autographs all over their hats. One guy did it all over his jersey this tour. Literally, his jersey is filled with tons of signatures. And that's how we get buy-in is because it's the other players, what they did, and then those stories get handed down. 
So all of this, I mean, it's very much around creating a culture of experimentation. And sometimes these are small experiments, other times these are larger experiments. And I think in 2020, you introduced what was called like the game-changing experiment, which was introducing the world to a whole new brand of baseball, which you mentioned earlier, banana ball. Mm. Yeah, that was crazy. So banana ball, for the people who are unfamiliar, it's, we developed a new game and baseball, but made it a two hour time game. Every inning counts. So literally if a team wins an inning, they get a point and you can have a walk-off celebration with a Gatorade shower in the second inning. Like it's ridiculous. Batters can't step out of the batter's box. There's no bunting. If you bunt, you're thrown out of the game. You know, there's no mound visits. There's no walks. You can steal first. And if a fan catches a foul ball, it's an out. Like it's a crazy game. And uh, we developed it because we were watching our fans. Uh, Michael, I don't know about you, and I think people have a lot of different opinions on this. A lot of people believe in surveying their customers or surveying. I struggle with it. Henry Ford never surveyed his people and said, you know, do you want, what do you want? Because the joke is they would have said faster horses. You know, Steve Jobs was completely against surveying. No one would have said that. Same thing with Amazon. So I'm more intrigued about watching our fans and then thinking about what's a better experience. So we take pictures of our grandstand every 30 minutes. We keep track of when fans leave. Not necessarily when they come in, but when they leave. And so by watching this for many years, even with every game sold out and a wait list in the thousands, fans were still leaving games early because it was too long. And so we realized that nine o'clock was that right time in a two hour game. And so we started testing it. And yes, we, we did an experiment in 2018 with colleges. We played a nine inning game in 99 minutes, which was outstanding. We had a lot of failures along the way, a lot of uh, parts of the rules that just didn't make sense and we had to get better at. But now 98% of our fans stay until the end of the game. And so if you think about watching a Major League Baseball game and look at a crowd, well, it's different. You know, crowds aren't that great this time anyways. But if you look at a crowd and see at the end of the game, it's different. And so that's how we developed this game. And it was a huge experiment. But because of all the tests, we realized that's the future of the bananas. And we're going to be playing banana ball, hopefully all over the world. The bananas mission is fans first and entertain always. I think the slogan's even, we make baseball fun. How have traditional baseball fans responded to this approach? I imagine not everybody's loved it. Oh, yeah. Traditional baseball fans, they hate what we're doing. Are you kidding me? It goes against all tradition, all the way the game's supposed to play. But, you know, I mean, literally, when we open up the game, we say, this is not your grandpa's game. You know, this is the greatest show in sports. This is banana ball. And, you know, we're we're intentional on that. And I'm not trying to take away from the way baseball is. Baseball was a great game. And it still has moments of greatness. But for us, you know, we're not focused on the traditional baseball fans. We're focused on people that want to have fun and be together. And I think when you open up that audience, it's a much larger audience. And so I think one question every business should ask and be able to answer is who are you not for? And when you know who you're not for, it makes it very easy to target the people you are for. Was there ever a time, or maybe even early on, when you're, you want to go in this direction that you're going, but at the same time, you're getting a lot of resistance, obviously not very easy to go outside of the norm. Were there times where you just thought about kind of reining it all in? Not me. And, and again, probably more people that are rational and sane. Yes, people that are actually have like a normal brain. Everyone's heard this year, the average of the five people you spend the most time with. The five people I spend the most time with are Walt, P.T. Barnum, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, and giant big thinking innovators. And I know that sounds crazy, but I wake up almost every morning and read a book by one of them just to get my mind thinking bigger and thinking differently. And so for me, if we were doing the same thing, I would go crazy. And if we weren't having failures and experiments and things going wrong, I would feel antsy. And so I think criticism is an interesting thing. It hurts. 
My God, if you've, been, if you've been called the P.T. Barnum of your industry, I'm sure you've got criticism because anybody who's called P.T. Barnum anything gets criticism along with it. And it hurts. It sucks. I, I mean, every day someone on Twitter will say something negative about the Savannah Bananas. But the difference now is that people are now defending us to them, so we don't have to say anything. But I believe if you're not getting criticized, you're playing it too safe. Because if you're trying to do the same thing as everyone else, people won't be talking about you. You're not doing, you're not thinking big enough. You're not thinking outrageous enough. So the day that we don't get any criticism is a day that I feel like we're standing still. And I would question, how do we push the envelope? I'm in complete agreement with you because if you go on any of your social media platforms, if you go on the TikTok videos and you look at the comments, so I always like to look at the comments, the top rated ones are always like, that looks like so much fun. That looks like an amazing time. How do I get tickets? Oh, it's like the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. Like, like you could just tell like people are blown away. Like the fans absolutely love it. Scroll down, you'll find some. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure down the line, someone's like, that, what an abomination. And I'm sure, I'm sure that exists. Fake baseball, we hate this, but it, but it makes me laugh now because I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> like there's enough positive out there. Absolutely. So you state that every business is in the entertainment business. And I want to address the skeptics, those listening, because I, I love that there's a specific example you use in the book that's amazing, considering our audience, right, which are attorneys and law firm owners. And I imagine that some that are hearing this conversation or read this book will initially think, well, this sounds cute, but Jesse, I'm not running a baseball team. I don't have millions of TikTok followers. You know, I'm running a law firm. How do I apply this to my business? Maybe you could do it in yours, but I probably can't do it in mine. And you actually use an example of a divorce attorney in the book. It's comical to me because I think everyone thinks the definition of entertain is me in this yellow tuxedo. Like, you gotta be like this. And like, of course, law firms should not be dressed in yellow tuxedos unless that's really who you are. And if you were, that'd be a little, little skeptical of that. But the reality is people have a definition of entertain they don't really pay attention to much. And I had to look it up because I was like, the definition of entertain is to provide enjoyment. It's to provide enjoyment. And isn't every business, especially if you're in a law firm, like you need to provide some enjoyment to people that you're serving. Like they need that more than anything. And, you know, I, I think of the way entertain is you've probably had uh, dinner gatherings at your house, right? Uh, I'm kind of antisocial, but yes, once every, you know, three, four years. And once every yes. four years. And when you have those four years, every party or that gathering, you will entertain the people that are coming in. You'll ask them, can I take your jacket? Can I offer you a drink? Can I do this? It's paying attention to those little details and trying to provide enjoyment in every single step of the way. So like, that's it. Like that's the tension. So like whatever business they are, like literally map the moments of the experience. And so, yes, if you're in a law firm, if you're going through whatever it is, Literally think about how do you create those moments to be special? And yeah, me and Chaz had some fun with the divorce attorney. What stood out from you in that story? Well, it's just the fact that you can make anything, even what someone could deem as not very interesting or not very exciting. I mean, even down to how are emails worded, how are you know papers delivered, like just how can you translate the jargon into a way that's much more accessible, even down to the very words that are used. I know you talk about Disney, instead of calling them customers, we call them guests, but just even all those things. Well, again, like even our invoices, like, you know, congrats, this is your day, the day you've been waiting for. Today is the day you get to pay. You may think you've had days like this, but never, never like bananas payday. So pull out your, you know, savings bond, Bitcoin, rare coins, credit card check, and make that payment like we know you can. This is your moment. Now seize it. Your life will never be the same. Like that's literally an invoice, but it's an entertaining invoice. And again, law firms like we have to be professional. Well, my question to anybody that says they have to be professional is when was the last time your spouse came home and said, I met the most professional person today. He was just so professional. We don't get excited about professional. We want unique, we want fun, we want memorable. And it might not be all our firms, but that's the way it's always been. But what if you did one experiment and said, you know what, I'm gonna have a little fun with our voicemail. 
I'm not going to make our voicemail like everyone else. I'm going to make our hold music like everyone else. Something so people can say, you know what? These guys are human. These guys are human. We want to connect with humans. We want human connection. We don't necessarily need someone that it always has to be so serious. That's what brings light. That's what brings happiness. And that's what I'm in search of always. And if I'm working with a law firm, I want to be able to have a fun conversation with them sometimes. I don't want it to be always, all right, uh, well, this five-minute call is going to cost you this. This five-minute email is going to cost you this. Like all these friction points without us just thinking about how can you make it a great, entertaining, enjoyable, enjoyable experience for me. So along this journey, what's been the biggest challenge along the way of like just kind of making this vision a reality? I think it's still, it's making sure everyone is aligned and on the same page and you're bringing on the right people. I mean, we've been fortunate, you know, we haven't let go anyone in, geez, since our first season. Like we just, it, we've attracted the right people and the right people, they feel this isn't the right in the bus, they will leave. And, but I think when you have a big vision of what you want to do to make sure that everyone is excited, is fired up, is ready to go. And I feel that every day. So it's not a challenge, but I know as we grow, that's going to be, you know, it's going to be unique because when you grow, you go through growing pains. You know, we went from four people in the office. Now, now we have 25 full-time and 200 part-time. And so that's what I look at next is how do we make sure we take care of our people? And then they feel that not only are we making the fans have the most fun they've ever had, but they have the most fun. And I think we're doing a pretty good job. Emily's on top of that and Marie and Jared and our people, we want to have create those you wouldn't believe moments for them and sending Marie with her dad to go to Ireland on a bucket list trip and, you know, sending Patrick to the waste management 16th hall and Kurt to go to the Duke one of the last games with Coach K. We look at all of what everyone's bucket list is on our entire staff and we try to create those moments for them. And that's what gives me even more joy than necessarily doing something in front of a 10,000 sold out crowd. So it's fascinating. I mean, as you describe all these different elements and kind of the stages of what that experience is from start to finish, I'm curious as to like, how has this vision evolved? Like meaning that it seems like every single detail, like the little things, even down to like the evolution of the bathrooms. Oh, the bathrooms, yeah, that's been fun. Kind of golden throne right now. It's like anything. So once you start seeing things, you start seeing it everywhere. And when I was selling sponsorship, now we have zero sponsorship. When I sold sponsorship with our first team in Gastonia, every single billboard I noticed, every single ad in a magazine I noticed, every single newspaper ad I noticed, because you know how you view things is how you do things. So I was viewing things and that's what I was doing. You know, now I view every single detail in the experience from when fans come to the parking lot, from when they walk in through the ticket booth, look at every single moment. And so that's all I see right now. And so one of the biggest things, and I'll share this because this is not in the book, this is something that we just did. I realized that we were pretty good at the last impression. And you know, at the end of the book, I go into the stand by me and that really cool moment, but that was it. And so I, I, I literally went to Emily and our team, oh guys, they leave the ballpark. That's not the last impression. There's another last impression ever and we're not hitting it. So me and Emily started after every game, we write a handwritten thank you note to the fans, scan it, email it the next morning. So they get a thank you from the owners. And then I was thinking there's gotta be one more touch, just one more. And so I thought, I was, I was, I was like, is there a song, is there something? And I was like, oh, Bare Naked Ladies, one week. I, I went to our guy, one of our team members who can sing. And I said, can you create a song one week, but with the bananas after the week that they watch the game? And he goes, yeah. And so he wrote up, a, it's been one week since you've seen us play. You watch the banana nanas dance in a funny way. And he wrote this whole song. It's been five days since you heard the band and this whole song. And we create a video with that song and it gets sent to your email uh, one week after the game. And my point is, it's like, we never would have thought that until we started trying one thing at a time. And when, if you're a business, think about what's that first impression when people go to your website and they fill out a contact form, an interest, or they call, what's that one? Can you win that one? 
And if you win one of those first touches, that'll lead you to the next touch and then the next touch. And that's been 15 years of working on that. I feel like we're still working on it. So there's something you mentioned. You used to sell sponsorships. Now you don't. You don't have sponsors. Why is that? Because we're not right in the head. I thought we already went over my, how I'm insane. We decided two weeks from the pandemic to do uh, the worst thing you could ever do for a business and throw away hundreds of thousands of dollars. So on February 25th, 2020, we announced that we were creating the first ever ad-free ballpark and there would be zero ads. And we had hundreds of thousands of dollars in sponsorship that we eliminated like that. Why would you do something so crazy? The name of our company is Fans First Entertainment. And you have to be able to do things that maybe even fans don't even complain about, but it's still attention to the detail and the experience that they might know of. And Michael, if you've been to a sporting event, I guarantee you've probably heard a sponsored ad and a read. And you said, oh, go visit this car dealership or this so-and-so. And it's a part of everything. Not one fan came to that game to hear that. Not one person wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be advertised to. You know, I hope someone promotes something to me today. I want to get sold today. Someone sell me something today. Yet at every stadium in the country, every arena in the country, they have ads all over the stadium, ads all over the ballpark, ads in the billboards and odds there. And so I thought this to myself. I said, you know, if I'm a fan, I don't want to be advertised to. I don't want to be sold to. I don't want to be marketed to. And I don't think it's the best business model for us to move forward. And if we work for the fans, we'll make that decision. So we made that decision that day and got criticism from in the industry. The fans were like, oh, that's cool, man. That's really cool, you know, fun. But like the industry ripped us apart. It was a challenge, but I would say fast forward two years from there, um, we do seven times the amount of merchandise that we did in total sponsorship, seven times. And so I think when you do things for the fans and work for the fans, they'll find ways to repay you. And I'm so fortunate that the fans have made up for us that we can create an experience with no ads that's solely the entertainment that we wanna provide for them because we work for them. We don't work for the sponsors. And we work for our fans, we'll create the best experience for them. So Jesse, you state that changing the game, breaking the rules, creating this unforgettable experience, but all starts in the same place, which is really believing in yourself and being your own biggest fan. Like, what does that mean? And, and why do you encourage business leaders to, to start by being their own biggest fans? This is something that took me a while to figure out because I struggled. And I'm sure, Michael, you've been in, in the business where you have done things that you didn't enjoy. Maybe you didn't like waking up in the morning. You know, you were handling cases. You were doing things you just didn't want to be doing. And that zaps your energy. It zaps how you treat everything. As Tony Robbins says, you're not in a beautiful state there. And I realized that, that when I started, I wasn't a great fan. I loved what we could do, but I wasn't a great fan of what I was doing because I was doing things like selling sponsorship and financials and operations and things I was bad at. And once I was able to say, you know what, I'm going to follow my energy and do what gives me energy and be the biggest fan of what I do, that it gave me permission to scream from the mountaintops about what I'm doing because I believe in it so much. I love it so much that it's then creating fans. And when you really believe in something, when you love something, when you're doing something that you're passionate about that gives you energy, it's unbelievably contagious. And you can feel it, Mike. When you're talking to someone that loves it, like, I just want to, like, be around that person. I want to be, like, what can we do together? And you feel it and you want to do it. And that's all about fandom. When you have a fan that they're fired up for a team and they're excited, they're cheering, they're yelling, why shouldn't you do that about the life that you have and the people you surround yourself and what you get to do every day? And that's what I try to do. And I try to surround myself with those people. And the momentum that's happened because of that is unprecedented. So I hope I'm not spilling the beans here, but... Readers of Fans First, those who make it past the conclusion of the book, they're rewarded with an additional surprise. And you discuss this concept of plussing. So what do you mean by that? And what are a few plussing practices? Again, uh, the great Walt, 
came and play here. And, you know, he said, Disneyland is, is, will never be completed. It's a living, breathing thing. We will continue to plus the show. And I think in that chapter, I share the story about how when they had record attendance that he wanted to spend $350,000 on a Christmas parade and all the accounts and managers like, we're already at record attendance. Why would you do that? It's because I'm not doing it for them today. I'm doing it for them for the tomorrow and for them to keep coming back. And because that is the power of plusing. You want to keep giving them something that they want more of. And that blew me away. And I think what we've looked at and, and you talk to our director of entertainment, you talk to our marketing team, you talk to any of them, they say, what can we do to plus this? So how do we plus the banana baby? How do we plus the dancing players? How do we plus when players deliver roses? How do we plus the one week email we send out? And so it's that constant plussing and making it better. And it's that feeling of you're never settled. You're never settling with something the way it's always been done. And so I finished the book after the book's already completed, just to share that we're never going to stop plussing the show and you should never stop plushing your life and plussing your business. Jesse, as, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? <laughs> oh, it's, so it's funny that that's a, a great question. And I never thought, but it, to be a game changer, it starts by first questioning the game and questioning the industry you're in and feeling how can you make an impact that no one's ever made before. And the only way you do it is by just starting. And I think if you want to be a game changer, just start doing, start experimenting, start testing, start trying things you've never been done before. And uh, I think anybody has the opportunity to be a game changer. I want to give a huge thank you to Jesse Cole for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Jesse said that how you view things is how you do things. And regardless of whether you own a baseball team or a law firm, you have the power to create a world-class and memorable experience at every point of your client's journey. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Jesse Cole, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with the co-founder and CEO of 8Sleep, Matteo Franceschetti. So at the end of the day, the way I always pitch the company is we want to do two things. We want to compress your sleep. So what if you could sleep only six hours and get more rest than when you were sleeping eight hours? And second, we want to save your life. What if your bed could scan your body in the future and going to bed was more valuable than going to your doctor for an MRI? That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.